Lord, would you allow this passage of Scripture, Lord, now to feed us? Would you give us wisdom and discernment to know, Lord, what it is you desire for us to see? And Lord, how you want us to respond and how you want us to change as a result of our time in your word this morning. So, Lord, allow your word to have its way. Allow your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, um, to enter into those places that need uh, your, your, your guidance and your counsel and your wisdom. And, Lord, would we not only be um, convicted by this passage, but, Lord, would we also be encouraged? And would we see you afresh? And would we be people that are hoping in our sovereign God who, who rules and reigns? Now, Lord, use this messenger to be your servant this morning. Allow your word to go forward with power, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I first came to the United States from England, which is, I think, 1980, um, there were a lot of things that were new to me. Um, hiking boots, surprisingly, because um, everyone wore them. Um, Guys parting their hair down the middle. You guys remember that? The feather hair back there, and they would, you would always have the, the comb in your pocket. That was the era in which I came. Um, the all-you-can-eat smorgasbords, which is kind of a redundant way of saying it, right? Um, but buffet restaurants. It was just a new phenomenon. I can go in there and eat all the fried chicken I want and then some? Yes, but you can't take anything with you. Okay. So, I mean, have at it. Boy, that was fun. And not only that, banana splits. I could not believe how much ice cream Americans would eat. You order a banana split, and it was like this big, huge thing, especially after all the fried chicken I'd eaten at the smorgasbord. Um, but another thing struck me when I came, and that were eight tracks. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, I have no idea what an 8-track is. It's a good thing. But even when I came over in 1980, 8-tracks were somewhat a thing of the past. But in my context, growing up in England, I had never seen it before. It was a new phenomenon. Now, for those of you that are too young to know what an 8-track is, it's like a cassette tape, only bigger. And it had room for what? 8-tracks, right? And it would typically be used in the car. And it was a really horrible tinny sound. The quality was not good at all, but it's what everyone seemed to have. Now, I had grown up with 45s and LPs. Again, if you don't know what those are, uh, we can talk about that a little later. But typically, those are what are called records. Um, and those, of course, didn't work in cars, right? Um, but then there was this new phenomenon called the cassette tape. And uh, cassette tape was a great thing because you could take it with you, you could put it in your car. And my car um, was so full of cassette tapes, literally when you stepped in the passenger side, you went crunch because there were cassette tapes on the floor and in the glove compartment. By the way, does anyone keep gloves in the glove compartment? Anyway, it's just a passing thought. Um, just ponder that. But in, in the console, there were cassette tapes, and, and you know, they were great. I used them a lot. Um, and then the, the next phenomenon that came out was the CD, the compact disc, and it was amazing. All the, all the info and all the, the songs you could put on one CD and how it just would slide in and slide out. It was so smooth, and then you had the, the ones that had multiple CDs, and we still have that in our car today. It's, it was great, and it still is a good, a good medium for 
for music, and I would have to learn a new word. It was called data, right? And um, just kind of all this development going on here as far as music is concerned. Then they came out with flash drives. No longer did you need these cumbersome CDs, you know? I mean, they're just like taking up so much space. Now you had a flash drive you could just plug into your car if it was set up that way, and you could just choose the songs right from the flash drive, and just amazing what you could do. And then, of course, now we have things like iPods, we have Pandora, we have Spotify, all of those wonderful things. And, and the, the development of music, the development of, of sound when it comes to music um, has come a long way. What you could only hear live at one point in time, now you could take with you, but not only take with you, it almost sounds better because the quality is crisp, it's clear, it's broad, it's, it's fuller. Now, friends, there's a reason why I'm, I'm, I'm painting the picture here of this development of music, because there's, there's some, of what, 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 some of that effect that is going on here in 2 Samuel. What we have in 2 Samuel 8, if you want to look at it this way, is an eight-track version of the kingdom of God. It doesn't have all the pizzazz of what we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels that show Jesus Christ coming to the earth and and ministering on the earth and, and teaching while he was here and then going to a cross and dying on that cross. We see that unfolding in the Gospels. And then when we turn to the epistles, that is explained for us in deep theological ways that take us back to the Old Testament but show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And yet, here we have in 2 Samuel 8, a rather unrefined, undeveloped record of God's kingdom. But in the course of 2 Samuel, it is a necessary reminder for the reader that God was moving quickly to establish his promises to Israel. Remember, chapter 7, God's covenant with David, and in chapter 8, the narrator lists for us now all that David was able to do. And we see here the the immediate, I want to say, fulfillment of the promise. Now, it wasn't a complete fulfillment, but it was a partial fulfillment, but it was taking place right away. So we come now to this passage humbly and thoughtfully and with an eye to God's final kingdom under David's descendant, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I would like for us to see that 2 Samuel 8 is a glorious foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. It is not complete in its picture. It is somewhat somewhat chunky, somewhat... um, tinny in its sound, because it doesn't compare to what we have revealed for us in the New Testament, but it is still a picture of the kingdom nonetheless. It is a snapshot summary of the kingdom of David, and it points to the ultimate kingdom where God's son, David's descendant, Jesus Christ, rules with glorious might, with glorious delight, and with glorious Right, His glorious might, he'll, he'll subdue all his enemies and they will serve him. His glorious delight, the idea there that he will be worshipped by all. And his glorious right, his rule will be marked by righteousness. 
you want to just jump back to chapter 7 and verse 10 and just notice what it says there, because chapter 8 really is a fulfillment of chapter 7, verse 10. This is God speaking now to David. He says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall affect them no more as formerly. So God will establish Israel in a place where wicked men would be unable to oppress them. Now notice in the passage, maybe you saw it when we read, but there is a refrain. It happens twice, and it kind of gives an anchor, gives a direction, gives a, a fashioning but I want to say to what is happening in this passage, in verses 6 and verse 14, it says this, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So it's the Lord who's bringing partial fulfillment of his promise to David. See, this is not David's conquests. These are the Lord's conquests through his servant, David. And what David is doing, and what God is doing is he is bringing now some partial fulfillment to his promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now to David, ultimately. So we're going to look at it really in three sections. First of all, let's look at the extent of God's kingdom. I think this is a, a pretty incredible section of scripture. It's, a, it's somewhat bloody. Um, it is certainly a conquest passage. Um, it seems like, okay, what does this have to do with us? But you're going to see what this has to do um, with you in just a little bit. Notice it says after this, right at the beginning. So this is tightly connected to what we've just seen in chapter 7, where the, David's covenant is given, and David responds to that covenant with praise and prayer. And in this text, we have a catalog of David's victories, which are organized thematically um, and not necessarily chronologically. And I want to begin by just noting the big picture. I'm just going to highlight some things, and then we're going to look at some specific things here. In the big picture, just notice the nations that David subdued. The Philistines, who were to the west of where Israel was. The Moabites, who were to the east. The uh, Arameans, to the northeast, going all the way up um, into modern-day Iraq. The Edomites, who are to the southeast. But notice also, as we read, the words that are used to describe David's activities. The word defeated is used three times. Subdued is, is mentioned. Measured, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Struck down. And then notice now the results of that in chapter, in, in verse 2 and in verse 6 and in verse 14. It says that they became servants of David, the king of Israel. So all of this activity is going on. David is accomplishing what he needs to accomplish as far as subduing the nations. Now, what is it that the writer is drawing our attention to? David here is seeing the fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham, also known as the Abrahamic covenant. Let me invite you to go back to Genesis, in particular, verse uh, chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And I, I just want you to see the promise to Abraham in chapter 15, as well as also chapter 17. And I want, to, I want you to be able to see and make the connection as to why David is doing what he's doing. Genesis 15 and verse 5. God promised that Abraham's offspring would be like the stars in the sky. Now, this is an incredible reality. Remember, 
um, Abraham's problem was what? He had a wife who couldn't bear a child. And so for God to say that was an incredible promise, but God is fulfilling this promise. He is making out of Abraham this, 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 this nation that is just a, a mass of people. Chapter 15, verse 18, God promised Abraham that he would give Abraham and his descendants a land. Notice what it says. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So here we have this extent of the land laid out in promise. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8, there's actually a lot of things that are said about the promise, but I want to home in on verse 8 in particular. He says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the promise. So God is promising that he is going to give Israel the land of Canaan. So the whole of Canaan is promised to Abraham and his descendants, and David then is carrying out God's promise by subduing the nations in the land of Canaan. West, east, northeast, southeast. This is the expansion of the kingdom in accordance with the promise God had made to Abraham. So please understand this. David didn't get up one morning and say, you know what, I've got this great idea for my own self-promotion. I'm going to subdue the Philistines and the Edomites and the Arameans and, and all the others that are around here because I want to make myself great. That's not what's going on here. David is being used by God to accomplish what God has already promised. This land belongs to Israel. And so David is doing God's work. And here's just a point of, of application we need to think through. What God says he will do, you cannot thwart. You cannot stop. His purposes will take place. Now certainly, there was a lot of time between Abraham and David. And there's a lot of time between Abraham and Jesus Christ coming. But God's promises will take place. He'll expand his kingdom in his way and according to his own timetable. But we must be careful that we don't try somehow to apply God's words and attribute those kingdom principles, for example, to our own country. Now, if you remember, maybe 200, 100, 200 years ago, um, England had an empire, and it spanned the globe. And they actually believed, many of them believed that they were God's kingdom being unfolded around the world because wherever they went, Christianity went behind them. And you can actually listen to some of their patriotic songs and they're, they're rooted and saying things like, you know, this is Jerusalem, talking about England. And they're, they're seeing themselves as the vehicle through which God is ushering in his kingdom. And of course, here in the United States of America, many times, people think of our country as being God's country. This is, this is the kingdom where, where God reigns. And let me burst your bubble a little bit. That is not true. We certainly want God to be honored in our country, but this is not the kingdom of God on the earth at all. The kingdom is the church. In other words, the kingdom is fleshed out through the context of the church, not through 
a nation like England or America. No, in fact, Jesus said of his church, I will build my church. And he sent his disciples out and said to them, Behold, I am with you, when? To the end of the age. So in other words, he's saying that this church is the vehicle through which he is building his kingdom. Not some kind of a a human, earthly nation. So friends, if someone challenges you and says, the church is a thing of the past. Now there's a sense in which in our culture today, people are saying things like that. It's like, oh, oh you guys just, you just want a crutch to, to lean on. You just, you're just trying to be religious and spiritual. But the thing, the, the church is just going to diminish. It's not going to last through the 21st century. Now friends, don't be taken aback. Don't be intimidated. That person just doesn't understand the character of God. They wouldn't be the first person that said that. They wouldn't be the first person or the first ruler of an empire to say, I'm going to try and stamp out Christianity. That has happened before on a number of occasions. But they don't understand the nature of God's promises that they cannot be broken. They simply have a distorted view of God. So God will do what he has promised His will, his purposes, his promises will not fail. And friends, we need to be reminded of that, especially in a year, a political year that seems to be chaos. We need to be reminded that our country is not God's country, but we want God to be in our country, right? You understand that? There's a difference, but things don't look good. And I mean, just on a reality, right now you look out, you're like, oh man, you know, the choices that are before us, like, oh man, this is not healthy. Don't be so consumed with politics that you neglect to be consumed with God's kingdom through his church. Do your part. Be a citizen of this country. But more importantly, be a citizen of God's kingdom, working his will in his way through you to expand his glorious kingdom. Now, that's the the general big picture. Now, we want to move into the specifics, and we're going to go back and just highlight some of the things about these nations, because David ultimately subdued a number of nations. Notice in verse 1, we have the Philistines. After David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, David took Methag Ammon out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, ever since the days of Samson, Israel's most formidable enemy has been the Philistines, if you remember, the, Israelites def- or the, the Philistines defeated the Israelites and captured the Ark of God. They thought that was a great thing. Of course, that was a terrible thing for them. It was a horrible experience. They eventually sent the cart back to the Israelites because of all the things that were happening to them. But the Philistines also came and aligned themselves up against Israel, and they had brought their champion out, Goliath, right? And it was David that, that defeated Goliath, the champion of Gath, the Philistine. They're also the ones who defeated Israel and eventually killed King Saul. And in that battle, they took over one half of the territory of Israel at that point in time. So this was a formidable enemy. But in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, we find David quickly, once he's on the throne, what does he do? He goes and takes on the Philistines, and he drives them out of the Israelite territory, gaining that territory 
back. But what we have here, though, is not David pursuing the Philistines in the Israelite territory. We find David pursuing the Philistines in their territory. He's going into Gath. He's going into their territory, and he is winning the battle. He is, he is forcing them now to be his servants. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 18 tells us that David defeated the Philistines and took the anchor city of Gath. They had five major cities. Gath was like the, the, the capital of them all. And really, um, we'll see the Philistines again, but they will not really trouble Israel anymore. This is a significant victory for David. Then there's the, the Moabites in there to the east. Look at verse 2, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Now, the Moabites were traditional enemies of Israel to the east. But there's two things that make this action um, so much more impactful. Now, just some things to think about. In 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 3, while Saul is pursuing David, David sends his parents to be under the protection of the Moabite king. Now, we don't have any record in Scripture. Oral tradition says that that Moabite king actually turned on them and murdered them. We don't know if that's true. It doesn't really affect anything in this passage because David is not going, I want to say, in retribution for that. He is doing what he's doing because this is all part of God's plan. This is all part of the expansion of the kingdom that God has promised. But there's certainly some family connection if there is something going on there. But even more than that, it's not just David's parents, but it has to do with his lineage. Do you remember a woman by the name of Ruth? who was what? A Moabite. So I mean, he's actually turning on some of his ancestors through Ruth. That's probably not a fun thing to do, but it's part of the, the package here. And I think what we can say is this, that David's commitment to God's word and promise was greater than his family ties. And friends, that's something maybe we ought to think about. Are you more committed to God than you are committed to your family ties. It's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, Jesus even talked about that a little bit in the Gospels, talking about if you're going to follow me, what do you need to do? You need to hate your mother and father. Now, the idea there is that you are devoted to me more than you are to your parents and to your children and to your wife or in other case, to your husband. You're devoted to me. You're, I am first in that relationship. And David here is saying, I am, I am the, the, the servant of the Lord. I am the king of Israel. And my job here is to carry out his will. Now, I think what, what strikes us when we read what happens with the Moabites is the methodology that David used here to defeat the Moabites. He, he measured out three lines and put to death Two of them spared one line. We read that and we say, man, David was cruel. Now, we're reading that through the lens of modern-day decency, all right? Through the Geneva Convention. 
We're not reading that through the lens of how things were actually carried out among peoples who were defeated in David's era. And when you were a nation and you were a soldier and you went to battle and you were defeated, you were either murdered or you were put into slavery. So you can look at this and say, this is really cruel. Or you can look at this and you can say, this is actually merciful. Because he allows one-third of the soldiers to live. And in allowing one-third of the soldiers to live, he sends them back to their homes where they could be with their wives, they could raise their children, they could farm the land, but they would also be responsible to bring tribute back to him. Now we have to wrestle with that. That's just the kind of warfare that went on during that day. But he's merciful here. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, let me just remind you that one day Jesus Christ is going to be condemning people to an eternity in the lake of fire. And he's going to be exercising mercy to people who will bow the knee to him in full trust. We don't like the harshness of God, but that harshness is there because of his justice. So David is acting in one sense, just like God will ultimately act in the final day. Then we come across the Arameans who are to the northeast. God had declared that the land belonged to Israel. Saul had made an attempt to conquer this land. It was 1 Samuel 14, 47, but he failed. So now David sets out to stake Israel's claim. The Arameans functioned a little differently than maybe other nations. They, they were kind of independent cities that did come together when there, were, there was opposition. And so all the way, as, as David was, was making his way to the river Euphrates, which is a long journey, he comes up against all these different armies. And that's kind of summarized in this, this whole section here. And so just as he, as he moved ahead, he encountered opponents Again and again. Let's just read. First of all, we have Hadadezar, verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power to the river Euphrates. So this is, he's defeating him along the way, and he took from him uh, 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the, ch the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Then we have the Syrians who are coming in. They're also Aramean here. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, uh, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So through his, his conquest, David took spoils of war, and the enemies that he overcame became servants to David and brought tribute. And so one of the significant things about the Syrians in particular in Damascus was that was actually a very prosperous city because it was along what was called the King's Highway. This was a, a merchant route. And in, in capturing Damascus and that whole area, David automatically had riches flowing in. Okay? So this was a strategic and an important area of conquest. So the tribute that he got from Damascus would have been extremely significant. Now, there's something interesting also in, in just what we have read here, and that is the fact that David took all these horses and he hamstrung them. These are the chariot horses. 
Notice that, that even in the spoils of war, David is mindful that it is the Lord who is giving the victory wherever he went. And this is one of the reasons, I believe, that David hamstrung the horses. Now, if you have an NIV study Bible, in the note, this is what it says. David may not have understood the value of the chariot as a military weapon. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, who writes these things, right? That was just a ludicrous statement. Certainly, David understood the value of the chariot as a military weapon, but he also understood his heart. God wanted to be sure that in, or said he wanted to be sure, David wanted to be sure that in his success, he would not drift away from God. Psalm 20 and verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And there's a temptation when there's a king on the throne and the, the conquest is successful. And we, we're told in this passage, the Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave him victory. But you know how easy it is to, to, to be the one who's receiving the benefit of the Lord, but then to begin to attribute it to yourself and think that you're the one who's doing all this? So rather than, I want to say, be prideful and to be tempted, he hamstrungs the horses. And some of the horses are kept and some of the chariots are kept. So David, by his actions, is saying, don't trust in horses and don't trust in chariots, but trust in the real triumph that is trusting in God. Then we have the Edomites to the southeast. So you see this, this geographical thing that's going on, right? We have the west, we have the east, we have the northeast, we have the southeast now with the Edomites. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. By the way, you can read about that in Psalm 60. Then he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So the Edomites lived in this, this desert region between Israel and Egypt. They were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, and they were ultimately a cruel and a proud people. That's how Isaiah portrays them. And he strikes down these 18,000 Edomites, and he puts up garrisons. Did you notice that David, where he conquered, he put up garrisons. He, he, he maintained control of those areas by putting his men in those places to keep the peace. And that's going to flesh out a little bit as we look at later in the chapter, but there's something about that which is strategic, which is careful, which is purposeful on the part of David. But I think what we need to see here in verse 13 is that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down these Edomites. Now, we may be tempted to say, see, David is full of himself. He's proud. No, David is simply doing what God has called him to do. David is making a name for himself. That's not his pride. That is simply the effect of God's victory and the subdued nations knowing that it's the God of David who is doing this. This is what God said he would do with David. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 9. I will make for you what? A great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. He's speaking about David. This is exactly what's going on. So God was accomplishing 
in David and through David, a reputation for David, but that reputation for David ultimately pointed to God. Okay? Now, those were the nations that were subdued. But there were also some nations that saw what was going on and submitted. Now, the first one is the king of Tyre. He is not in this passage. But he's in an earlier passage, if you remember, when chapter 6, I think it is, where David starts to build his house and the king of Tyre smartens up. He thinks, ah, all right, there's a king in Israel now. I better make sure I build a good relationship with him. The king of Tyre begins to bring these resources, the timber that he needs to build the house. So the king of Tyre, who, by the way, is on the northwest of the region, has already submitted himself to the king of Israel. But now we find king, the king of Hamath, Toy, uh, in verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezar, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezar and defeated him, for Hadadezar had often been at war with Toy. Toy doesn't care about David's health. This is a diplomatic journey. How is your health, O king? We submit to you. Please don't hurt us. That's the kind of journey that was going on. And to support that, they brought tribute to him. So Toy here is a model of what the king of the earth ought to do when faced with the Lord's, the Lord's anointed king. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, show us that. It says this, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and trembling. Kiss the son, in other words, the son who is the, the ruler and reigner. Kiss him. Now bow to him, that's the idea. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what Toy's doing. He's looking around at all the different conquests that David is doing, and he's like, um, I think it would be better if I went to him and said, you know what, um, we can be uh, partners. Um, you can be the big partner. I'll be the little partner um, as long as uh, you treat me fairly and right and all that stuff. And that's ultimately what takes place. See, those who hear of God's king don't have to meet him as enemies, if they do, they will certainly be overthrown or subdued by him. But those who seek peace with the king of kings will certainly find it. And maybe you're here today and you think that you have entered the kingdom of God. But hear this, unless you kiss the son, you don't know him. Now what do you mean by that, Pastor Rod? Unless you bow down and worship the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, and you attribute to him full reign, full lordship over your life, you do not know him. You must come to him and humble yourself before him. It is not David we bow down to. It is David's greater son, Jesus, that we bow down to. See, this is, this is screaming at us that there is a son of God that is, the descendant of David, who will rule and reign. And this Son of God, Jesus himself, will subdue 
all the nations that are opposed to him. But he will welcome all that come humbly to submit to him. So, friends, that is the specifics of the extent of God's kingdom. Did you see the picture? Just let me paint it one more time. Here's what the narrator's doing for us, right? You have the Philistines to the west. You have Tyre, who's already mentioned, to the northwest. You have Arameans to the northeast. You have the um, Edomites to the southeast. You have, who is it to the east? Huh? Moabites to the east. So what he's saying here is, listen, David's kingdom, which was this small little area, has now expanded. The land of Canaan through David has been realized. The promise has been given. God always does what he promises that he will do. That's the extent of the kingdom. Now, let's consider the stewardship of the kingdom, the stewardship of God's kingdom. This text tells us of two resources that David would need to steward this new kingdom. The spoils of war, and secondly, the tributes of peace. So we're going to enter some of the same territory, but I want you to just to follow along the spoils of war. Look at verse 7. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Beta and from Berathai, city of, cities of Hadadezer. King David took very much bronze and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. That's the end of verse 10. And these also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold. And he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, King Azobah. So the spoils of war, when he went out in conquest, he gained the spoils of war. What is he doing with these spoils of war? Well, he's doing the same things with the spoils of war as he's doing with the tributes of peace. Along with the tributes brought by those submitted, or I should say those nations that are submitting, Toy and of Hamath and so on, the, the, the peoples David subdued came every year to pay tribute to him. Notice in verse 2, and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Verse 6, and Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. So he had the spoils of war that came through the conquest, but he also had this tribute of peace that was coming. If the tribute did not continue to come, the peace would stop coming, okay? It was a tribute of peace to maintain this peace. So all of this required a careful and God-centered Stewardship. And the narrator uses the expression, these, talking about the tributes and the spoils of war, these King David dedicated to the Lord. Again, what could a king easily do? He could take the spoils of war for himself. All right? He could build his own kingdom with all the, the victories and all the stuff that come with that, but instead he dedicates them to the Lord, and ultimately they were to be used then in the temple. Now, what's the point of all this? It's about shouting at us that in God's kingdom, hear this, everything belongs to God. 
Everything belongs to him. If it's horses, chariots, soldiers, gold, silver, bronze, it doesn't matter. All the spoils of war and tributes of peace, everything belongs to God. Friends, this is a forecast of God's future kingdom where Isaiah says in chapter 60 and verses 5 and 11, all of the wealth of the kingdoms will come to God. The prophet Haggai prophesied a very similar prophesy, speaking God's word to the people. This is what he says. This is after Israel is taken out in captivity and they're coming back and they're rebuilding the temple and struggling with that. Here's what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's all his. Everything you have is his. So in God's kingdom, all the nations will recognize that they, all that they have belongs to him. And friends, that's the nature of the kingdom, and that's the nature of the kingdom relationship we have with Christ as Christians. Now hear this. The house you live in, the car you drive, the jewelry on your fingers and around your neck and maybe in your ears, the stocks and the bonds that you own, the money you have in the bank, all of it belongs to God first. It's his. It's not yours. You might think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I get up every day, Monday through Friday, and I, I make a living. Isn't that good enough that I give a percentage of my earnings to the church. And of course the answer is, well, it is good that you do that, but it's, it's not enough. Now, I'm not here to say give more to the church. That's not the point. You see, 100% of your income, including the taxes that the government takes out, belongs to the Lord. Not 5%, not 10%, not 20%. All of it is his. And because that is true, he wants you to be a faithful steward of what he has given you. You might give 10% of your income to the church, and that's good, and that's right before God. But that doesn't mean that you're now free to use the rest of the 90% in any way you choose. You're not just kind of like saying, well, I'm paying you off, God, so now I can use the rest to do what I want to do. No, no, no. It's all his. And he's only asking you then to, to give a portion of that as God has prospered you into the context of the church, but the rest is there to be used wisely and carefully as a faithful steward. God wants you to be faithful to him in your generous giving. He wants you to be faithful and careful and wise in spending, he wants you to be a faithful steward of the gifts that he's given you. So when you choose that burger, or you purchase those tires, or when you give to missions, or you pay that phone bill, he wants you to be a faithful steward of the gifts that he's given you. He wants you to be 
dedicating all that you have to him. He wants you to be worshiping him with all the gifts that you have been bestowed. And of course, stewardship isn't just limited to your money. It also includes your stuff, your tools, your car, your home, your timeshare. You know, brother or sister in Christ calls you up and says, hey, you know, do you have a you know, do you have a, a saw that I can use to cut this wood? I'm doing this project. Well, I don't want to touch my saw. This is my saw. I want to use my saw. This, you know, it's got to be t- handled in the right way. Hey, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You got a timeshare, and it's sitting by itself, empty, and no one's using it? And you can bless someone in the church? You can encourage a couple who's struggling? Hey, go up there for a week. Go use it. It belongs to God. So it includes your stuff. It includes your time, your Saturdays, your Sundays, your evenings, your mornings, your vacations. It includes your, your, your many talents and your many gifts with instruments and technology and, and plumbing and carpentry and teaching and auto mechanics. All that belongs to God. Oh, that might be your gift, but it's the gift that God gave you. It includes your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your discipling of others. It includes your spiritual growth, your own discipleship, and your own worship. The point is, everything that you're experiencing in this world is all governed by God, and he wants you, as his child, to steward those things in accordance to his will. The point is that when you become a Christian, when you humble before yourself before the King of Kings, you said, in effect, you are my Lord and Master. All I have is yours to do with as you see fit. Now, you were likely told that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mind, but you may not have understood it completely may not have considered the practical implications of that, and you're still learning what that means. And I, w- I would say that all of us are still learning what that means. One of my friends um, growing up in high school was an, uh, a young man by the name of Charles Jeffrey Evans. We called him Buck for short. And he was one of those guys that um, took three years um, to finish his senior year. Um, but he could tell you who was pitching in the third inning in the World Series in 1949, and who hit the home run that was a grand slam, and I mean, he could, he could snap those things out to you. And we were together with some friends, it was at my house, and we were talking about what we wanted to do. It's like, well, let's watch a movie. Well, okay, someone said, well, why don't we go play basketball? And someone said, well, you know, we could go out to that, that restaurant, big boy in Michigan, and we could, we could go out there and None of us had any money except for Buck. And, um, and so we were saying, you know, hey, really, I don't really have the money to go do that. And because Buck was hungry, he chimes in with a gentle rebuke for us all. And he says, oh, come on, guys, haven't you read your Bibles? That God owns a thousand cattle on a mountain? Buck almost had it right. He was at least headed in the right direction. 
But God doesn't just own a thousand cattle on a mountain. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So he got a little mixed up. He didn't quite understand what the verse was all about. The point is, oftentimes when it comes to stewardship, we, we get things confused. We don't necessarily realize that God owns it all on a practical level. We just think about the check that we might write and give to the church. But it all belongs to him. You see, the cattle on a thousand hills is a lot more than a thousand cattle on a mountain. He tried. It was good. We corrected him, and we laughed. Now, friends, some of you here this morning are learning to grow in your stewardship, and I want to commend you and encourage you. Work hard at this. You have an idea that God owns it all, but you're still struggling to understand it. Well, well here, here's what you can do. Here's a, a place to begin. Just, just humble yourself before God and say something along these lines. God, all I have is yours. Not just part of it, but all of it. Help me to see how I can be a faithful steward of all you have given me. Help me to, to see how my stuff, my money, my talents, my time, and my relationships can be brought under the umbrella of your direction and guide us. Just begin there and allow the word of God to begin to fashion and shape your understanding of your stuff and your talents and your resources and how you can be a faithful steward. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, to note here that the very plunder which David took from his enemies and dedicated to the Lord would be used to help build the temple by his son Solomon. David didn't get to build the house of God, but he was greatly used to gather the materials that would be used in the building of the house of God. Now, friends, you may not be building the house of God, but you are being used to contribute to the unfolding of God's kingdom through this local church and our joint efforts around the world. Your stewardship is a means through which God is accomplishing his purposes on the earth. Remember, God isn't just sovereign over the end. In other words, the fulfillment of his promises. He is also sovereign over the means. In other words, the channels through which he works his will. And he uses simple, ordinary, run-of-the-mill people like you and me to get his work done. People who are willing to see his kingdom and to be willing to steward for the purpose of growing his kingdom. We're all gifted in many ways. And God will use us all differently according to the gifts that he's given us, but let us be a church that values the variety of gifts so that in our diversity of gifts, we can be a well-oiled machine for the glory of God. So here's what David is doing. He, he, he's, he is expanding the kingdom. He's being a, a faithful steward of the kingdom. But the third thing we see here is this, the administration of God's kingdom. What would this kingdom look like? What would it be like? We have here a summary of David's reign. It's actually the end of a very, very large section, beginning in 1 Samuel 15 and now ending at 2 Samuel 8. It's, it's the section called The Rise of David, where David appears and he ultimately gets on the throne, and this is what he does. And so this is a huge section summarized here. And what we're, what we're given here is this, this picture of the nature of his administration. The narrator is saying that for the most part, 
David exercised his kingdom in the proper way. Now, clearly David's reign was not perfect. We know that. But it did have a general tone to it. And that's what we're looking at here. He was, a, he was doing what a godly king was supposed to do. Both Psalm 72 and Psalm 101 stress this, that doing a king should be doing what was just and right for all of God's people. So notice, first of all, the character of David's administration. I'm sorry, I didn't put those up for you. Those are just the two main things that we found in that chapter or that section. So now the administration of the kingdom, the character of David's administration. And just note there, verse 15. So David reigned over Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Justice and equity. It's actually uh, uh, the same as saying justice and righteousness. It's a flashback and, and the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in the reign of David. Back to Genesis 18. You can just listen, but verse 19 says this, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Speaking about this descendant. So David's, David administered justice and righteousness to all the people. The, the ideas of justice and righteousness in our English language tend to kind of blend together, right? I mean, they, they're both, they seem like synonyms. If you went to Roger's Thesaurus, you'd find them really closely um, uh, knit together there. But in the Hebrew, there's a slight difference. Justice represents the what. This would be the, the, the rules and the regulations. You might want to say the, the justice system. The, the, the righteousness represents the how. How that, that justice was going to be carried out. It's, it's a moral word that maintains that justice will be exercised in a right way. And so we can correctly say that God is just. His laws are holy and pure. But God is also righteous, is that he carries out his justice in a right way. And so this righteous justice is to be the mark of every king and of God's kingdom. And this should be ultimately, friends, the character of every king and kingdom that seeks to honor God. Now, we in our country have made an attempt at this. In our country, we're supposed to be one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. But that isn't the kingdom that we live in, is it? I mean, there's no justice for the unborn. Um, there's not much justice for those whose consciences restrict how they choose to carry out their business. Um, there's little justice for those who are not willing to be politically correct. Um, and that's not necessarily just a, a general knock against the United States of America. It's just the nature of a, a nation that does not have God as its savior. There's going to be sin that enters in and rules. So don't get me wrong. I love our country, and I mean no, no disrespect, but the USA is not a country that exercises a righteous justice. Well, neither is England, neither is France, um, neither is Sweden, for any of those out you that think that Sweden is the greatest example. Um, neither is Canada. Um, there's only one place where that kind of righteous justice can take place, and that is in God's kingdom. And in David's day, there was, for a moment, a glimpse 
of what it would look like to live in a nation where God was acknowledged, where, where one could truly get justice, where right living would be the norm. This is also what's supposed to be a picture of the church. It's supposed to be a place of justice and righteousness, reflecting a time when the kingdom of God will come in all its glory. It's an imperfect picture of the kingdom, but it's a picture nonetheless. And it is this picture that reflects the gospel to the nations. And so friends, you and I, because we're part of the church, are called to reflect the gospel, justice and righteousness, even imperfectly. We're supposed to present that to the nations. Notice also then, secondly, the delegation of David's administration. And the key word here is order. In order to have a just society where people are living rightly, where that justice is carried out rightly, there needs to be order. And so David sets up this order. Notice what it says. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. So he's the general over the army. There's a recorder. His name is Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud. He was a recorder. In other words, the idea there is that he's the one that kept the public records. He's the one that kept the history then there's the priest, Zadok, and Ahimelech. There's the secretary, Zariah, probably the king's personal secretary, the one that would write letters to it and, and from um, the uh, other dignitaries that were around. There was a, a, a general over the king's personal guard by the name of Benaiah. He would be a key player um, even in Solomon's reign. Um, and he was over the Cherethites and the, the Pelethites. They're like, they're like special guard uh, for the king. Um, and then it says the, David's sons were priests. Now, we should note that order, friends, is, is essential and is central to the Godhead. The triune persons of the Godhead working together in complete independence and harmony. Order is central to a healthy church. All things should be done decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14.10 says. Order is central to our pursuit of Christ-likeness. And order is central to the kingdom of God. So here we've had this incredible picture of, of the extent of the kingdom, of the, the, the stewardship of that kingdom, of the administration of that king, where justice and righteousness were to be present in an orderly way. And there's just a, a few final thoughts that I have as we bring this to a close. There's a song that I remember hearing when I was a teenager in my home church where Southern Gospel music uh, was considered the music of heaven. Um, and one of the songs went like this. I won't do it with the twang, but you'll know what it is. I've been reading the Bible about the ending of the age. And one thing that's for certain, it grows closer every day. But I am not concerned about the way it's going to end because I've read the back of the book and we win. Now, it's a good reminder of what God has said in his word will actually take place. God will, according to his timing, return to this earth for his bride, the church. Every man from every tribe and nation will bow the knee to Christ, either as an enemy subdued or a friend that's been redeemed. Christ will establish his earthly kingdom and will rule and reign with a righteous judgment. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that you don't have to wait to the end of the book to know how it will end up. Rather than saying, 
I've read the back of the book and we win, you can say by looking at 2 Samuel in chapter 8, I've read the heart of the book and he reigns. See, this is, this is the, the, the central heart message of the gospel. Our Lord reigns. And when he speaks and when he promises, it will happen. Nothing can stop it. No human administration, no human nation can thwart what God is doing. And even if it seems like the nations are raging and the kings and the rulers of this world want to eradicate Christ and his followers from the face of the earth, he who sits in heaven laughs. That is what Psalm 2 tells us. Let me invite you to read Psalm 2 with me in your Bibles or you can look up at the screen. We're going to finish with this and you'll see how how 2 Samuel 8 and Psalm 2 just go together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the, the, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And friends, you take refuge in him when you respond to his gospel call and you see your total and complete sinfulness and come running to him for mercy, trusting only in what he has done for you on the cross by paying the penalty for your sin by bearing the wrath of God and through his death and his sacrifice reconciling you to himself. Lord, help us today to contemplate the impact of 2 Samuel 8 on how we are to live, how we are to view you, how we are to celebrate the gospel You are a God who will do what you promise. And you expect of us to consider the responsibilities before us and the talents and the time and the resources that we have to be something that we steward. But Lord, we do all that in a way that would reflect you with justice 
and righteousness and with an order that will bring glory to your name. Lord, we thank you for, for, for challenging us this morning. And now, Lord, as we step back and we pause and we reflect on the ultimate picture of sacrifice, the death of your son on a cross in our place, where we deserve to be. Lord, may we rejoice. May we be humble. May we be in awe of who you are and what you have done. Lord, may there be conviction if we have sin. May there be comfort when we seek restoration. And Lord, would you be glorified, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.